Welcome to Dialogues with Nature. This podcast is for the curious kind who seek wonder in the often overlooked details of nature, interested in creative practices and appreciate a slow pace. Today I'm talking to Mugda Sapte, who is the founder of Kindred and Wild, a small apothecary based in West London. Let me read to you what Kindred and Wild stand for in Mogda's own words. Kindred is for connectedness, not just with each other, but because deep down we all understand the need and importance of connecting with nature. Because everything is interconnected. Kindred is for the connection to ourself. Wild are the things we don't understand but need to learn or revive. Like so much lost wisdom about plants and also of life. Wild is to remind me to be outdoors more, to be with nature, to learn and be inspired from it. Wild is for the landscape of the inner self that is untamed and hidden. Something I am trying to befriend and rewild. So in our conversation we are going to talk more in depth about the products Mugda makes by hand and sells in her apothecary as well as the services she offers. She generously shares a lot about her inspiration, her interest in herbalism, holistic healing and Ayurveda that connects her back to her ancestral roots in India, where she comes from. We also talk about sensory experiences, particularly of tactility and how important we both feel hands are. I'm grateful to Mugda for accepting my invitation to be my guest on this podcast. This conversation is yet another one that um, I feel I was enriched by. I hope you will enjoy listening to this as much as I enjoyed recording it. Let's begin. Welcome to Dialogues with Nature, Mukta. Thank you. Thank you, Hannah. Let's begin by perhaps you telling with your own words a bit about your background and um, your story, how you reached the place where you are now. So my name is Mukta Sapte. I was born in Mumbai, India. I came to London to study in 2005. And after doing about two or three different courses, all related to design, uh, I graduated and I've sort of been here since. I am the founder of Kindred and Wild, a small batch apothecary based in London here. And I'm also a freelance product stylist working with independent makers and small businesses to help them with their product shoots. Uh, How did I get here? That's a a very long story. It's more like a jigsaw puzzle, really. There were like all these pieces in my life that were going on separately, seemingly unconnected, and they kind of fell together quite nicely at some point. So um, I was having a lot of skin problems sort of during the time I was here in London and being a person who's quite biased to nature 
I, I avoid going to like GPs and doctors if I can. So when I was having skin problems, I chose to go to Ayurvedic doctors in India and they started consulting me and telling me things that were sort of out of balance in my body, I suppose. And that sort of started to make me wonder and inform. And also it, there was like the sense of discovery of like, oh, is that how my body is working? Is that how it's connected? So I started exploring those avenues when I came back and reading more about it and how that philosophy works and stuff. And that sort of started the seed of this idea of holistic health and how your body is completely interconnected uh, and not just your body because Ayurveda considers a human being as a collective of mind, body and emotional aspects. So I started treatment or, you know, changes in my lifestyle and diet as recommended by the Ayurvedic doctors. And this happened like at two or three different times with different issues that arose and it's it's a kind of a I guess it's a different kind of mechanics where you solve one problem and then you kind of something else has had a domino effect and something else comes out. So over a decade, I've had a lot of skin issues. So that was kind of going on internally and sort of informing and changing my perspective about health and the physical body and the human being as such. And on the other side is when I did come back from my visits to India and family, I would obviously, it was hard for me to put products on the skin because it had become at one point so sensitive. I couldn't like anything other than water would just aggravate it. And I went through phases of trying out all sorts of different face washes and creams and things and nothing really worked. And I was really frustrated. I remember seeing like seven different types of products on my shelf and nothing really worked. And it was really frustrating. So I basically started to get rid of everything and just go back to the real basics and just, you know, start with coconut oil and nothing else or olive oil and stuff like that. And as my skin started to improve, I started getting a bit more experimental. I started getting more curious about essential oils. I started getting curious about the other kind of uh, oils like almond and hemp and, you know, stuff like that. Started blending my own uh, oils for the face and keeping it very sort of gentle and soothing and no preservatives and no synthetic ingredients and stuff like that. And so that was kind of obviously going on as a personal healing journey for myself and at the same time, I was also exploring botanical dyeing uh, at some point in the last decade, inspired by India Flint, who came up with this technique of eco-printing, uh, which is also a very, like, very, very fabulous and mesmerizing. And I started getting more and more into that and, you know, trying to teach myself to identify trees and plants and go on foraging workshops and walks and learn about the local environment and local trees and urban parks and stuff like that. And uh, I would bring things that, that home. I'd bring the leaves and the twigs and sometimes flowers. I'd go pick nettles and things like that and come back and use the eco-printing techniques to dye fabrics. And at some point I had a sort of a sole trader, I guess, a freelance business where I would then go to Spitalfields Market or like different markets and sell scarves and things like that. But through that process, I was getting much more interactive and curious about nature that was around me and also self-teaching about a lot of these 
plants and how to identify them, but also what their properties were. And that started to get me more curious about their medicinal qualities, because a lot of the plants who which obviously had um, or can be used for dyes also had medicinal properties. So that kind of started to get me really curious about plants and herbs in general. So I did, just as a, out of curiosity, I did a herbal medicine or herbal remedies workshop uh, or a course which ran for a whole summer for about 10 to 12 weeks. It was. Was this in London, this workshop? This was, yes, it was in London. And uh, it was conducted by a herbalist called Melissa Richardson in East London. And uh, this was uh, quite a long time ago. But um, yeah, so all of this was kind of just exploring avenues uh, and just following where, you know, my curiosity was taking me, but for entirely personal reasons. And eventually I had quit a job in uh, 2015, I think. Yes, early 2015, I'd quit a job uh, which had been very, very emotionally graining and stressful and it actually left me in a quite a depressed uh, state and that's when I started to really begin to question obviously also you get to that age around sort of 29 ish 30 and you sort of start to question what are you really doing with your life where, where is this all going you know you're almost 30 you how you know you start to take stock and account of things that are I guess that you really value. And I was going through that phase for over six months. I couldn't really find a job and stuff. And after doing a lot of soul searching, I realized that there were a couple of things that were non-negotiable and that was a turning point. So the things that were non-negotiable that were that I had to work for myself. I had to work with nature and I had to do something tactile. So for me, a sensory experience is extremely valuable. So I have to do something with my hands. And then that was kind of my, I guess, guiding compass of searching through my life of, okay, what have my experiences accumulated to that allow me to do these three things? And then eventually after another six months of exploring and thinking and, you know, try to do more cell searching, it sort of occurred to me that actually I've gone through this experience of having to self-heal. Uh, it started off with my skin, but obviously it goes on to deeper layers and I can work with herbs and plants to create products. And that would also allow me to work for myself and create something that could be offered to the world that has sprung out of my own experience and my own, I guess, uh, philosophies that evolved about holistic health and about the body. So then the penny kind of just dropped. And like I said, these different aspects that were happening, they just kind of fell like a pieces of the puzzle and like a jigsaw puzzle and they just clicked together. Yes, it does sound like connecting the dots, making up a, a picture from all these various aspects and um, from what you describe of your journey I find it really beautiful how organically it all came together and these three main things you mentioned that is most important to you how they manifested in the products you create and also services you are offering because um, you're not only selling what you make but uh, you offer people the experience of um, making these themselves or introducing them, as I understand. Um, yes and no. I started sort of trialing out doing workshops 
uh, last year and they didn't go very well. So I was going to actually rethink, yeah, I was going to rethink them this year, but obviously with the current situation, it's hard to do, especially in person. Would you like to talk a bit more about what worked and what didn't work with um, particular things in a workshop? For example, um, I know you were uh, leading an incense-making workshop last October at the Creative Countryside Retreat, where unfortunately I couldn't go. That one actually wasn't incense-making. That was oh, an introduction. okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. That wasn't... That's okay. <laughs> that was uh, an introduction to Ayurveda, Oh, yes. Actually. And uh, that went really well. So that I considered uh, sort of successful from the immediate feedback that I got uh, at the gathering itself. And another one that I did where people could make their own blend of oil for whatever purpose that they decide. So my oils uh, are multi-purpose so that you can use it as a body oil or a face oil or as a cleansing oil. So I did a workshop where people could blend their own for their own purpose and for their own skin types. And this was also at another gathering. So I I feel like the gathering aspect of it really worked. And when I tried to do it by myself individually, somehow there was a lot of interest uh, on Instagram and stuff, but there there was not enough participation. So it could be a whole host of things. It could just be that the dates didn't work for people or the timings didn't work or the locations didn't work. Or, you know, obviously people have other commitments um, and they are busy quite a lot in their lives. So I'm not sure what it was that didn't fully work about the workshops that I led myself. But the workshops that I led at other gatherings seemed to be extremely sort of successful, I think. It almost as if a gathering would already create the conditions are provided for such workshop that you would offer around holistic healing and working with nature for people who are already interested in it and come together because they they celebrate nature. Yes, and I think it's also, it's like the entire experience. It's not just the workshop, it's also you know, you are spending that much time with each other. So you you get that sort of connection to other people. And it's not just about a two hour workshop, you actually are staying there. Uh, For example, like the Creative Countryside Gathering, you know, you stay with the same people the whole weekend. And so the connections that are forged are sort of stronger. And there are other activities as well. And there's also great food. And so it's like a general nourishing for the soul experience in its entirety and not just a singular workshop and I think that is one of the things that worked. Yes I think you very well expressed what are the things necessary for a workshop to work perhaps then it has to be a longer experience in terms of a retreat or um, just something more wholesome than just a single hour or two hours taken out of a person's day. I must admit, I know very little about Ayurveda besides um, the couple of supplements I take and the pukka vitamins and teas. Occasionally I find uh, someone online whose blog I start reading, but I've never been to an immersive teaching or retreat or day-long workshop where I would have learned from someone who have acquired sufficient knowledge to share about um how holistic Ayurveda is. So my understanding of it is really vague. 
but I'm very intrigued that because you also come from your place of origin where you were born, I'm presuming was permeated with Ayurveda already while we were growing up. Is that right? Yes, it is. It's one of those things where in India, you, I suppose the culture of old wife's tales is still very rich and thriving. So you hear a lot of things uh, about, oh, if you're, you know, if you're having pimples, you should try this powder or that herb. And so everyone has their own versions of remedies and every sort of family has their own little kind of, you know, um, oh, my grandmother used to do this sort of a thing. You know, you have to be quite discerning about what, what sort of works and what not doesn't work. But I remember as a teenager, I was so curious. I would try everything. I would put like lots of very strange things on my hair, on my skin. And I was just very much into that. I think right from the beginning, I just didn't realize it then because um, I suppose everybody was like that around me. But I was especially so, I was like quite excited to try any recommendation. But in India, the, uh, the Ayurveda is actually still practiced as a mode of medicine. So there are schools, there are universities of Ayurveda, you, you know, people get qualified. You can actually go to, like I said, you can, I, I went to qualified Ayurvedic doctors who will then diagnose and prescribe uh, so that sort of tradition um, is still very much alive, and so yes, I guess it, it was it was very natural and permeable. But it's it's almost that it wasn't until I came here and the sort of absence of it here, in contrast to it being so normal back uh, in India, was has enhanced my perspective, I guess, because it's just so normal you don't think about it twice. Whereas here, it's it's completely absent, so... I wouldn't even know where I would start if I wanted to properly be introduced to Ayurveda. I've never personally met an Ayurvedic doctor. I've never even heard of one. I'm sure there are some, but probably I would have to dig deep and ask quite a few people to find a good recommended doctor. Yes, and over here they would be very expensive indeed, because obviously you know you you do it as a as a separate private alternate thing it's not a mainstream thing whereas in india it's quite common so it's it's just part of everyday life in a way so yeah that that kind of i suppose attracted me to it even more when i came here because over there, if something happened or something, you know, you, you, just the way you go to your GP or something for, for a normal cough or like something like a rash or something, you, you going to an Ayurvedic doctor is completely normal. Whereas here, I'd go to a GP and they'd give me a steroid cream and I'm like, that's not enough for me. I want to know what's causing it. I want to know. I suppose that's also informed this, this I guess I'm quite obsessed with understanding why things happen. Whereas generally i'm not trying to stereotype but generally i feel like when i went for the same skin problems here they just said oh you might just be allergic to something and i'm like what might i be allergic to and they're like oh it could be anything it could be soap or detergent or you know a cream or something you ate and it was so vague and it didn't answer any of my questions and they would give me a cream with steroids or something and they're like oh just apply this or stop using your face wash maybe that's what you're reacting to so everything seemed to like a very response to you're getting a symptom 
try not to do this or just put a cream on. Yes, I had my own fair share of experience with similar things here in the UK and uh, I felt that it was not holistic enough to to connect the various parts of me to understand what was really going on under the surface. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess I guess that's probably where this I mean, I'm I'm a person who asks a lot of questions and I I enjoy reasoning quite a lot as as it's just a, a part of my personality but i think i guess that also the fact that ayurveda is quite a normal thing in india also solidified the fact that when i came here and i was asking questions about why is this happening what can i do about it was frustrating because in ayurveda they would tell you or they would ask you questions they would go more in depth because one of the things that and i i mean obviously i'm speaking about ayurveda because i've had more experience with it but i think other traditional uh, medicinal modalities like the traditional Chinese medicine or homeopathy or other other sort of you know um, traditional medicines, they would do the same. They would try to go to the root cause of the problem and not just treat the symptom. And for that, you need more inquiry. You need also understanding of yourself, and you also need to be aware of how things are changing. So, for example, if if the doctor asked me, oh, has something stressful happened in your life? Or have you been stressed about something? I need to be aware of my own self and my own behavior for that. Yes, it is part of also self-observation, I feel, to a great extent. That's so true. Could I ask, how would you define Ayurveda? Of course. So Ayurveda actually is a combination of two Sanskrit words, Ayur, which means life, and Veda, which means either knowledge or science. That is pretty self-descriptive. It's it's a science or knowledge of life. I mean, I guess I can go on about how old it is. It's, it's supposedly at least 5,000 years old. And uh, I'm not sure if you know about the Vedas, but Vedas are these scriptures so they are written down we have copies of them yes they are very very famous yes so ayurveda is part of those vedas from 5000 years ago and of course 5000 years ago was probably the date you know the dated version that we have of the copies that they found but they would have been older and before they were written down because obviously we, that's probably not the first copy that was written and even before that that would have been an oral tradition passed on so they are quite ancient and the fact that they are still practiced today for me is a testament that something about it works otherwise we it would not have lasted this long simply put um, if it didn't work people wouldn't have gone back to it again and again so that's one of the descriptions the other descriptions which i guess people don't know about it a lot is ayurveda is a sister philosophy of the yoga so again the entire system is holistic. So yoga is for your mind. Um, actually, it's it's exercises. It's it's ways to prepare your body for meditation and for spiritual awakening. Whereas Ayurveda is basically based on same or similar principles, but it's for health and taking care of your body through diet and food and uh, healing it through herbs and other kinds of um, natural medicines. So they actually work hand in hand and they follow the sort of same basic principles. And I'm not sure if people know that a lot, but they are sister philosophies that go hand in hand. 
Yes, it's very interesting to hear you made that connection. Somehow in me, the two were connected, but again, I'm not sure how how well known this connection is. I I studied um, Indian philosophy many years ago back in Hungary. Oh, really? Yes, at the Buddhist University. I was um, I was studying Buddhism, and the first year we spent reading a lot from the Vedas. Mm. reading the background where Buddhism was born, where Buddha grew up and all the influences mm. he had. It's something I find um, having been born in Europe and raised in a primarily Christian spiritual background, surrounded by the church. And ever since I was little, you know, these two opposing good and evil and heaven and hell, these dualistic principles that I was exposed to as a child. And when I became a teenager, to me, it was fascinating how, as I became more spiritually aware, how deep and how much broader and more open traditions there were in the East. And that's how I arrived at uh, discovering Buddhism and learning about it. That's interesting you say about how diverse they were in the East, but in my experience, they they were traditions equally diverse or equally interesting and broad in the West as well. They just, I suppose, got white, I guess, sooner. So I am equally interested in the idea of herbal medicine, and I'm quite fascinated by the Celtic lore here, especially as a, I guess, archetypal stories for me from a, from a human psyche perspective. I've been leaning into that a lot in the last couple of years. So for me, I find that they were nature-based traditions even here, and they were nature-based healing traditions even here, and probably all across Europe. They just got wiped out quicker. And so and they don't have this 5,000 years old tradition, what you mentioned, written down. Yeah, I guess that's, that's the biggest issue. That's the biggest thing that they weren't written down. And so they feel like they're, I guess they are, in a way, in their original form, being lost to history. But yes, when I sort of read about the local herbs here and local kind of things about plants and medicine here, I sort of feel the connection to those, I suppose, I can't probably call them my ancestors, but the ancestors that were here. For example, um, I was fascinated to read a couple of years ago uh, in National Geographic that one of the skeletons they found, I think it was in northern France or Spain, of a Neanderthal uh, in a cave, and they found seeds of chamomile and yarrow. And they not only did they find the seeds, they actually found the remnants of those plants in between the teeth of those Neanderthals, which means that they were eating those herbs. And we, you know, there was this speculation that perhaps were they self-medicating? You know, we know the chamomile is extremely soothing for the stomach now, and yarrow has extreme healing properties. But to find that people even back then obviously knew about the herbs and were possibly using it, for me, that was extremely exciting. And so when I'm looking at yarrow or, or chamomile or I'm using it, I, I sort of, there is a part of me that thinks back to that, how, how old this herb has been in use of and has been healing humans in one way or another. And that I find is a, is, is a huge connection for me to not only nature, but to the history of this place and this kind of local 
I suppose, land. Yes, it resonates very much with me too and how our own place on earth as human beings and connecting back to history, how we can relate to this very basic act of gathering plants and using those plants. Absolutely. It is inspiring and I feel it all begins really with making this connection with plants that opens up a potential to explore so many so so many things and in a way what we discussed so far is just various aspects of um, how you approached nature through your own experience and I feel um, the potential for thousands millions of people to explore their own unique approach when they reach out for a plant is there and and to discover something um, entirely different Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I remember that I suppose in, in it's a micro sense of adventure when I would find a plant and if I'm able to correctly identify it and read about it in some plant ID book or, you know, find out what it was and what it does. It was like a sense of discovery. It's like, oh my God, like I didn't know you could do this with this plant. And there was a sense of excitement and that obviously connected me to the plant. So yes, everyone would probably have a different way to connect to plants and a different emotional response, I suppose. But I think it's important to make a note that I think we need to be a lot more aware of this and sort of do it with intention because it's so easy to just walk past a field or, you know, a pavement and not even look what's growing there. Yes, there is this thing... um that um, they call plant blindness, that I, I don't have this, but um, I read about it and I heard about it, how people don't even notice nature or it just blends into the rest of things surrounding us in a way. Again, I feel a really useful tool here is, is just looking. And the more times you look, the more often, the more you will discover at least that's my own experience. There is this little pocket of wild space near where I live now. So I moved at the end of summer last year from London to Suffolk. And um, mm -hmm. now we live at the edge of this small town here on the coast in East Anglia. And um, there is this little patch of wild overgrown land, a few minutes walk from our home. And um, we go there almost every day for a walk around this field. There is a row of old oak trees and um, hedgerow and loads of wildflowers growing in this field. And um, every day we go there, I discover new plants that I haven't seen the day before or the week before. So it's just this repeated um, action of looking on the same patch of land or the same street if someone lives in an urban area. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also about, it's interesting what you say about plant blindness. I didn't know about that and I don't think I have it either. But um, it's also about being present in the moment and sort of, I guess, being mindful because that is the sort of space that you start being uh, observant from once you're sort of feeling more present and more aware of your own surroundings and where you are. And it's so important to do that because I remember a time many, many years ago, I used to be so much in my head 
And I realized at some point that I could go on for an hour walk without ever looking up and all I would see is pavement because I was so in my own head and looking down all the time. And it has taken a very intentional, purposeful and mindful shift to look up and observe what's around me and therefore being present and being in my physical body uh, rather than just in my own thoughts and in my head. And that is what has allowed me to be curious about, oh, I, what's that there? I didn't notice it yesterday when I went to the same part because obviously I was so consumed with my own thoughts and in my own head and in my own worries and anxieties. So I find that trying to connect to nature itself is healing in a way because it kind of gets you out of your own, I guess, worries and thoughts and problems in your own mind and asks you to observe something Yes, it's a two-way or almost like a transformative dialogue, I think. Yes, that is exactly what I'm trying to say, a dialogue. Yes, happening inside within you and it's also happening in between you and what you're observing. Yeah, and that connection actually is quite healing, isn't it? Yes, I agree. I can confirm this with my own experiences. I made a note here earlier, you mentioned um, India Flint, who is a botanical dyer and wrote a book that I have called The Second Skin. I think it's at the very beginning of that book where she just simply says that it all begins with a walk going out. And there is uh, another person who I was going to bring in here, John Moore who you may know, the famous Scottish man who protected a lot of North America's wild mountains and wild spaces. And uh, I can't remember the exact quote from him. I'm not very good at um, remembering, but I will try to convey what the sense of that was. Whenever you go out, you're also going in. Yes. Oh, that's beautiful. Yes, I will try to find a quote and put it in the show notes, making connection with the landscape and also making connection with yourself. Yes, I agree. I, I actually have one of his quotes written down somewhere on a similar line. I can't remember that. Yes, he said a lot of lot of good things, worth remembering. Absolutely. <laughs> you were going to say something about India Flint? It was her first book. I accidentally found that in a bookshop. Uh, it's called Botanical Colour. And uh, that's what kind of really inspired and shifted something in me. And it kind of inspired my final major project at university. But also, yeah, that that whole, her first book basically is what inspired me to start doing the whole eco-printing and eco-dyeing methods um, and keep trying it. So in a way, it kind of reminded me to interact with nature because one of the things I suppose I didn't even realize I was lacking at the time was this was 2006 so I had been in London for about one and a half two years maybe three and although as much as I love the city for being so green and having parks and I would go for walks and things it's a different thing when you go for a walk and you begin to touch a tree or you sort of stand in front of it and wonder what its name is and suddenly you're not simply walking on the nicely paved parts when you start going off those parts when you start sort of picking twigs up and picking leaves up 
and touching it and feeling it and trying to sense it and being curious about it. I guess that book kind of inspired me to go and do it again because I used to do that as a child back in India. But, you know, as you grow up and you sort of think about school and exams and universities and stuff, I sort of forgot about that and had lost that connection. And I hadn't realized how much I had needed it until I found that book and it inspired me to actually go find a tree that I can die with or go find a leaf and stuff. And it wasn't until then when I started, I realized that it's not just about a walk in the park. For me, I have an urge to connect to nature in a more sensory manner. So I have to go smell things. I have to go touch things. I have to sort of feel them. And that was entirely different from simply walking in the park and breathing in fresh air. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is it was it was her book that sort of returned me back to being more interactive with nature. Because as a child back in India, I, I would climb trees, I would pluck mangoes and stuff. And it was, you know, it was, it was again, part of your child, it was normal. But as, as I grew up, it kind of faded away. Yes, I feel um, our entire education, and this is probably happening all over the world, is centered around educating our minds and completely not paying too much attention to working with our hands although I have to say for me that's um, that's always been part of my life not necessarily in mainstream schools but um, going to pottery classes as a child and embroidering with my grandmother at home and um, so I always had that undercurrent of working with my hands and um, by the time I became a teenager it has become such an essential tool for me to process things every day to work with my hands that um, that instinctive touch touch of a material and gathering materials from nature is um, I would say it's almost an instinctive one in us um, I can't Absolutely. I can't back this up with any research but um, I am certain someone must have already done some some kind of research in how instinctive it is in us to to go out and gather raw materials from nature and and making things from it you know baskets and carving wood and um, collecting stones and leaves and bark to dye color with absolutely I mean I'm completely with you on that if you find somebody who has done this research I would love to read about it because I'm 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 sure that that exists and um It actually reminds me of something that I heard in my women's circle yesterday. Uh, somebody was saying that your hands are basically, so so they're, they're the extension of your heart chakra. So when you hug a person or you're holding somebody in your space, your hands are part of that love and heart vibration. And for me, the hands are full of the nerve endings and when you touch things and we are picking things up that texture that sense of touch is sending so much information to your mind and informing like you said that instinct and it just reminded me like as you were saying about about this thing about your hands being the extensions of your heart so when you're touching things when you're interacting with people or nature or you know surfaces and textures and picking things up to me it sounds like it's one micro way of acknowledging 
some sort of a connection and love mm. through your hands and through those nerve endings that are actually going straight to your brain and perhaps to your heart as well. And uh, yeah, I wonder if there's something in it to look at. Thank you for sharing this. I've never heard of this uh, heart chakra connection with the hands, but it makes total sense as I was just listening. Yeah, it did as well yesterday when I heard it. And I thought actually it makes complete sense because your legs and your feet are the extension of your root chakra in a way, which is one of the reasons why I think the idea of earthing or walking barefoot on the the earth works because it kind of makes you feel grounded. And it sort of made sense. Like, of course, why wouldn't your hands be the extension of your heart chakra? Because that's how you hug. That's how you embrace somebody and bring them in your love or share love. Also, the hands are giving and taking the the act of receiving and offering. Yes. Um, oh my God, yes, of course. So interesting. Um, one of my favorite books, um, I wonder if you know it or read it, it's called The Thinking Hand. Oh no. Okay, I'm going to write that down. It's written by a, a Finnish architect. So a couple of years ago, um, when I f- uh, graduated as a sculptor soon after and already while I was studying sculpture, I realized that I was really interested in architecture. So there was a couple of years in my life and I wanted to become an architect and um, I was reading a lot of architectural books. And I stumbled upon this one by Juhani Palazma. He's the writer. It's a Finnish Finnish name. I'm going to share the title with you later. And he wrote this book called The Thinking Hand that um, takes us through from the beginning of times, um, from the caveman, how, how the tool use how the more and more sophisticated um, tools developed because of the use of the hand. In, mm. that, in that book, he puts forward this idea that our brains and us as human beings, we developed because we used our hands to create more and more sophisticated tools. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, yes, yes. Uh, I still remember at the time making this connection that that actually how essential it is for our own development to to be working with our hands and um and in it he writes um it's a fascinating book really one of my all-time favorites and he lists many many examples how tactility and and touch how how that really informs our life and um mm. it's a different way of um also an extension of our eyes through drawing and um, how um, he also goes into talking a lot about how through drawing and writing we we are pulling content out of us with our hands mm-hmm. basically the hand is the tool for pulling out um, oh yeah that's absolutely so true and fascinating I'm gonna have to look that up I think you would enjoy it Yes, I think that sounds right up my street. But while I was um, listening to you, there's something else that occurred to me about the hands. Um, You might know this. Have you heard of acupressure? Yes. So there are different methods of acupressure if you're looking at either the Chinese philosophy or the reflexology, which is a bit new, or you're looking at the ancient Indian one, which is, again, I guess, a slight extension of Ayurveda as well. So the concept is all different organs and parts of your body can be stimulated, if you, you know, the meridians and the energy flow through pressure points in your hands. 
So you're literally holding the entire health of your body in your hands. And there are different places where you can put pressure on for different purposes. For example, there's a digestion point. There's a point to stimulate the eyes. There's a point for your throat and liver and your glands and your spine. And it just, while you were talking about the hand and brain connection, that's just what came up for me. And I thought, isn't it fascinating that if your brain is developing or has developed according to this theory, because of the use of hands, that it's also connected to the rest of the body. And again, going back to this tactility to touch, to put pressure on from one, you know, with your one of your thumbs on the other hand, it's just, yeah, sorry, I'm not sure what point I'm making, but if that's what came up for me again, I guess I'm going back to the healing aspect of, again, holistic health and healing and how everything is actually contained within your hands. And that also actually, I guess one of the things I wanted to say is I remember thinking this one day when I was a kid and my mom was making chapatis and rotis and you have to use a rolling pin. And I remember, I guess I must have just found out about the second pressure thing and must have been fascinated because I remember thinking that everything we do when it comes to tactility, for example, let's just take cooking because that's a very general generic thing that everyone can do. When you're cooking, when you're squeezing things, when you're using those tools like rolling pins, you're actually also stimulating all those acupressure points. Um, when you're using the pestle and mortar, you're holding things, you're cutting things. They're all stimulating those points at different part times, depending on the tools you're using. So actually, I suppose I'm arguing whether doing things with your hands, using tools is actually healthier for you because because they stimulate different pressure points in your hands and therefore keep you healthy. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, it does. And I think um, it's wonderful how, how all these um, constellations or parallels can be drawn from. Yeah, and I would, I would actually, I would actually ex extend my argument and say, would that also mean that when your body and this, this is how much I believe in the holistic health and how much I believe in the body itself. Would that also mean that when your body needs some kind of healing, it actually looks for things to do? Like you said about that instinct of wanting to touch, wanting to feel, is that stimulating different parts in your body? Is that stimulating different organs or, you know, different aspects in your brain? that actually your body needs to heal and therefore your hands are automatically searching for them. And that's an interesting thought I've just had that yes, I'm going to yes. meditate on later on. Yes, me too. I'm going to take that with me. That's, um, that's taking, looking at it from an entirely new perspective. Um, mm -hmm. But I mentioned earlier the healing aspect of working with my hands that I experienced ever since my early childhood I always primarily thought of it from the as aspect of creating with my hands, using my hands to transform materials, materials I find, whether this was clay or or weaving or um, carving or um, or building things from what I found. Um, so it was always the transformative, creative expression through my hands, primarily how I understood the healing of my hands but what you offered just now this perspective of um, looking for the materials and the action with the hands the movement that actually facilitates what the body needs in terms of um, that's an inward 
journey or um, send, um, sending back the vibrations and the pressure. Yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting thought. I'm, I'm going to definitely try and research that as well, because I, I do think that's part of our instinct. Your instinct is always trying to heal you or protect you in some way you know your instinct a human instinct or your intuition is always for i wouldn't necessarily say survival although it is there of course when it needs to be but when it's not about survival when you're not threatened i do believe that your intuition and instinct is always to heal those aspects that need healing and to to thrive not just survive and you know that's that's also an interesting perspective that if you're instinctually wanting to pick things up or touch things what does that mean yes it it also in me it immediately begs the question how how much do i trust in my own hands and in my own body do i allow do i allow it to really touch and reach for the things that it yearns for or longs for or um before I um, because I feel we make so many plans with our heads with our thoughts what we are going to do even to the extent of what materials I'm going to work with and this is these plans I can make weeks ahead <laughs> so so when it comes to the actual day I'm sure um, you also experienced how often we have these impulsive things that I actually don't feel like doing this right now <laughs> Absolutely. No, I I totally get that. Absolutely. That happens so much. And I'm I'm wondering now, perhaps um perhaps those impulsive needs, um, even just to to touch different materials or, or not to work with any material on that day, perhaps because my hands don't need pressuring <laughs> in any any point. Uh perhaps um Perhaps there is something underlying in those impulses, more instinctive, as you suggest. I'm not sure, but it's a fascinating line of inquiry and, again, an opportunity to observe ourselves, I feel. I wanted to ask you more specifically about um, what products you developed that you are offering. I know a couple of them that um, I've been since I've been following you, but could you give an overview and also talk about uh, specific things like the incense and the oils and um, what is on offer in your apothecary at the moment? Sure, sure. So at the moment, I have three multi-purpose herb oils so these oils actually get infused in different herbs to extract their healing property um, there's three of them and they're multi-purpose in a way that you can use them for your face or your body or as a cleansing oil or as a moisturizer and or as a serum um, one of them the second one rosemary and thyme you can also use on your hair for your scalp massage or as a body massage as well oil then i've got three different balms which again are multi-purpose so you can use them on lips or cuticles elbows any dry patches of the skin i've been using it on my hands as well just because we've been washing them so much that usually i would find them a bit oily if i use the balm directly on my hands but they've just been so dry they've been just soaking it up so I've got three different types of balms. Um, then I've got three aroma diffuser blends. So these are pure essential oil blends that you can put in your diffuser. You can put in uh, an essential oil burner. 
you can um, do an inhalation with it. Sometimes I just like to put a few drops around uh, my pillow before I sleep. Um, uh, so, yeah, you can do quite a lot with that. Um, then I've got three uh, anointing oils, which are very special indeed. They have a quite a long backstory. Um, so you might want to... Um, go to the website to read about it but there are three oils and you can use them for self-made rituals like meditation or as part of your yoga practice or as part of you know taking a moment in a day or you can use it every day as a perfume on your it's a oil-based roll-on as for your pulse points we use one of them anoint in our uh, red tent so my local red tent group women's circle we use it as a part of a welcoming ritual so that you know again whatever rituals that you follow um as part of your well-being and self-care i've got three of those and then i've got three type different incense i guess fragrances the incense i make they are hand rolled i make them myself they are completely free from any added essential oils, fragrance oils, bamboo or charcoal. So they're pure botanical powders. Um, they don't have a stick in the middle, so they can actually burn pretty much all the way to the end. Yeah, I've got three of those. I think that's all about it. Oh, and I've also got a bath salt. Can people find these products all on your website? Yes, they can. The website is kindredwild.co.uk. And everything I have currently in stock is on there and everything's listed there. I'm going to put a link to this in the show notes. And you also mentioned people can find more information about uh, the various um, ingredients you're using. Is that correct? Yes. So um, all my product listings have ingredients on them. So whatever pro the whatever the ingredients are in each product are listed on the website. So it should be pretty transparent of what's been used. I don't use any preservatives at the moment and no synthetic ingredients. Everything is natural. I try and source organic ingredients as much as possible, um, although it can be quite tricky and sometimes very expensive. So um, it's not always possible, but I do try as much as I can to get organic organic ingredients. Do you source these from India, some of them? There's only two things that I source from India. Uh, everything else is sourced in the from the UK, companies from the UK. Another question relates more to something we touched upon a bit, um, is, um, is how and where people can access and learn more about what you're offering um, so we, we mentioned a little bit about workshops you you've offered in the past and um, while you were mentioning the um, the oils and their enabling or facilitating various um, self-care rituals I seem to remember uh, there was an invitation you once um, put out for um I believe it was um, a yoga workshop that you were assisting with um, with oils, with essential oils. Yes. So that was an interesting one. I would love to do them again, but I guess we just have to wait for things to go back to normal a little bit because they have to be done in person. So that was my idea. I wanted to, I, w I wondered 
what a yoga session would look like if it was based on stimulating or I guess balancing all your chakras. So I created seven different blends of oils, so one for each chakra. And what we would do is we would apply the oil and then do a sequence that was specific to each of the chakras. And it was a multi-sensory experience because obviously you had scent, you had the movement, I had these colored lights. So for example, the root chakra sequence would be done in a red light. So again, so visually you're stimulating that aspect as well. And then the song or the music would be at a vibration that was for the, the, the each chakra. So we had seven sequences, seven oils, seven colors, seven sounds. So that was interesting. I did that as a collaborative workshop with two different yoga teachers last year. And um, yeah, I've been thinking of picking that up again this year, but it, like, yeah, we'll, we're kind of at a standstill right now. But that's something that I would consider doing again, perhaps tweaking it a little bit, maybe making it more of a retreat. But we'll see. Uh, I guess my, I guess what I'm saying is at the moment, actually my entire brand is in the middle of pivoting. I've kind of been wanting to change a few things. In fact, if you go on my website, it probably says the first message is um, to bear with me while I make some changes. So yeah, I wanted to pivot a few things, give it a bit of an uplift and change a few things uh, at, at a very core level, at a very basic fundamental level. And at the moment, I sort of feel like until I figure out what that shift and change is in a practical terms I can't sort of do all these other things which will only follow from the very basic um you know it's almost like uh, my mission or my vision or the sort of the the, the reason for Kindred and Wild has kind of shifted and changed and something within me has shifted and changed and I need to bring the brand up to the level of where I'm feeling and how I'm doing and where I'm at and until that happens other things are kind of on hold because that itself is what is going to inform everything else. Yes, totally. I'm in a similar place myself in a way that I feel I have already arrived where I'm clear about my purpose and with what ingredients I wish to be working and the direction I would like to take it. However, the journey within that having arrived to the place where I have a bit more clarity there is still a long journey ahead yeah absolutely it's it's kind of like you sort of have a clearer idea where you want to go but now you actually need to figure out how to get there and you need to figure out the first couple of steps if even before you think of the other sort of you know yes. 90 other steps yes so I'm um you're exactly right I'm sort of in that place and I'm considering perhaps other offerings as well, um, things that maybe people can maybe download. For example, I did the introduction to Ayurveda workshop for um, the gathering, like you said, in autumn. I have all of that information, which can be like, uh, I'm actually selling that as a booklet because I had a few left over. So people can buy the booklet and then basically just read through and you know go through that themselves. And there's also a dosha test in there so they can do the test to find out what constitution they are and that could also be a pdf download in a way and there are other things which i'm trying to figure out what what other things i can offer 
other than physical products themselves. I talk a lot about rituals. And so I, I'm what I'm guessing and what I'm trying to say is I'm thinking of it from a holistic point of view. So if I'm saying this is a product and you can you do this ritual with it, what else can I do to support that ritual? And what else can I do to, um, what, what else can I offer to create those kind of spaces and rituals for people? So yeah, it's there's a lot to think about and a lot to unpick. And I'm sort of still in the initial stages of it. So you've caught me at a very, very weird time in my brand journey, I guess. I think it's it's the perfect time, anytime where you are, anywhere you are, especially having such a a clear and sincere approach to it as you do I feel is is a is a place where you can share from where you can approach you offer doors into your world to others it doesn't have to be all figured out I feel I can sense that it is an ongoing living journey for you and um and I don't think I could ask for anything more from anyone really who is um, running their own creative practice. And I hope we are going to have similar conversations when we are in our 80s, still yes. being on a journey, <laughs> figuring out. Yes, the next chapter. Yes, yes. that will be wonderful. Yes. I would still love to know you when I'm 80 as well. <laughs> yes, yes, me too. I hope we will remain in contact wherever we might be in the world by that time. Yes, absolutely. I'm expecting our creative practices will will change a lot over time in the next mm. in the next 40, 50 years or so. Yeah, absolutely. There will be an evolved version of things that are right now. So yeah. As will we be, I guess, evolved versions of who we are right now. Yes, yes. And how these two go hand in hand. Um I feel also when it comes to Working as creative practitioners with nature, there is this constant um, possibility for renewal in each season, in each season Mm -hmm. of uh, nature and also in each season within us, in our own lives too. Um, Oh gosh, yes, that's a whole different talk. I think I didn't even get to touch on the seasons part. That's another thing that I'm also considering how I can incorporate that and what I can offer it because... I've very much in the last sort of one or two years, much more leaned into, like you said, seasons within ourselves uh, and the seasons which are obviously happening outside. And then, of course, there's a season of the sun and there's seasons of the moon. And I'm definitely leaning much more into the lunar seasons as well. So that's another thing I'm kind of trying to unravel of how can I offer these things um, how can I bring them in to Kindred and Wild and what that what does that actually mean in in a practical day-to-day or a product or a service or offering level? How can I bring in more of the seasonal and the cyclical ways of being? Because that's another part of, like I say, we as holistic beings of emotional, mental and physical capacity are so interlinked with nature and a huge part of nature that the society and culture as a whole has overlooked is that we are cyclical beings. And I completely, totally, utterly believe that from my whole heart, that we are cyclical beings. And that is not being honoured in any of the systems that we have in place in our culture. And so a huge part of self-acceptance is that you're going to have different seasons. Uh, You're going to have different 
emotions and everything is just a phase. And as much as a cliche that sounds, it's true. Everything is just a phase. But every phase also needs different kind of attention, a different kind of energy, a different approach. And that also all is part of your self-healing, you know. So, again, that's that's a huge, huge topic that I'm trying to figure out in my head of how do you bring the cyclicalness in 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 your day-to-day life and in your self-care and your in your health and life as well well i think you you answered this for yourself just a few minutes ago when you spoke about rituals i feel through the rituals that's how we can honor and celebrate cycles and seasons and uh, i would even question when you mentioned that um, you are assisting um, various rituals with your um, with the products you developed and you're offering I was thinking that uh, ritual is such a spiritually rooted word and I use it a lot I am familiar with it and I'm comfortable with it but um, I wonder how many people will be listening to this may have never used ever for anything they do in their everyday is the word ritual because it has a deep spiritual connotation that implies at least in my understanding it implies respect attention almost treating an activity as if it was sacred it also implies gathering with other people often but you know um i've written a blog post about this actually ritual versus routine because i uh-huh because <laughs> because please, ritual, please do send a link i i would like to include that um yes i will do i will do it's so basically i think about rituals a lot and because it's such a huge part of uh like you said uh you and me our, our lives probably revolve around that and we use that word as a, probably a daily thing and we kind of have a sense of that meaning and i was wondering how is it different to a routine like how do i actually explain to people what's the difference is because how you know you could have a routine and call it a ritual so the thing that i after a bit of pondering and narrowed it down to is it is extremely simple a ritual is simply something that you do with intention and you know obviously there is a certain repetition for it but it doesn't have to be daily it could be a weekly thing it could be a monthly thing it could be a yearly thing if you think about what marking a day of a festival kind is it's a ritual and that only happens once a year but it's still considered a ritual so for me yes ritual has a deep rooted and spiritual connotation and it is sacred if you want it to be but it simply is something where like you just said it's done with respect it's done with intention it's done with integrity and it could be something as simple as a person marking out five minutes before going to bed and saying, I'm going to do a facial ritual because I care for my skin or I care for myself. And that could be the intention. Self-care is the intention. And, you know, the way you put oil on your face, you know, intentionally, mindfully with every stroke um, or like, you know, really having some sort of a gratitude as well. Like I do this, especially since I've been washing my hands too much because of the lockdown and stuff. I've had to do a grat- gratitude ritual for my hands because 
suddenly they are these things that contaminate us. But actually, like we've just spoken for most of this podcast, our hands are extremely important. I love my hands. So when I put balm on my hands, I actually think of, oh, I'm so grateful that my hands allow me that feeling of holding a warm cup of coffee or they allow me to, you know, that that feeling of squeezing a lime or anything as simple as that, but done with intention and done with the sort of with love and care and mostly for yourself, because that's a huge aspect. We are so, you know, people can be depleted in loving and caring and nourishing others but not yourself. So for me, a ritual could be something as simple as that. And it can be like one minute of your day, but it just means that you're marking out that time as yours. That's a very, very simple distinction. And, uh, and also what you mentioned, washing our hands frequently at the moment, um, trying to stay healthy and keep um, ourselves and each other safe. I feel this simple act of honoring our hands and um, being grateful for what our hands do for us and um, that's something I will take away with me uh, amongst many other things from this conversation. I feel we covered a lot. I'm really thankful to have had this conversation with you today. I feel it's such a a gift uh, you have of sharing your own experience through what you offer the world and um, it feels like a gift to me having listened to you talking today oh thank you so much Hannah it's always such a pleasure to talk to you and your voice and your sort of personality is so calm and I'm immediately at peace and yeah it's always a pleasure to share a lot of nature stories with you we'll continue doing that for many years to come I'm sure Before we say goodbye, um, could I ask if you have, um, apart from all the books and links we are going to offer people in the show notes of this podcast, is there any particular book or other resource that you would like to recommend others that had an impact on you and how you live in dialogue with nature now? There is actually. I recently finished a book called The Enchanted Life by Sharon Blackie. It's her second book. I've read her first one as well. And while I was reading that book, it it was it just felt like a huge homecoming for me because a lot of what she says are things that I already do, that there, there are things that I already think and feel. It's just that I've not either had the opportunity or I've not taken the time to verbalize it, to sort of put those concepts into sentences and words. And reading that book was like someone has taken things from my own mind and put it in a book and given it to me to read. And it was a huge sort of confirmation and relief and a sense of belonging, I think, because a lot of these things I am slightly embarrassed about. And so I don't talk about it. And I don't tell people that I do these things. And sort of having it read in a book just felt like a validation that it was okay, that I'm okay, I'm normal. And the thing she talks about is in The Enchanted Life is that sense of enchantment with the natural world and how we interact with it. 
And a couple of things I think we've already touched on, the, the, the idea of being present and the idea of sort of touching things and interacting with nature and stuff. So I think your listeners might really enjoy that. And you you actually probably will really enjoy that as well, because I think you are that sort of a person as well. When, you know, when you go on a walk, you're sort of so present. And like you said, you're willing to be enchanted with the world, um, the natural world. And it reminded me of that when you told me the story about how you go to that wild space near your home and every day you find something new and you're aware of that and you're observant of it and that's that's you being enchanted and living in the wonder of the natural world so I think that is something that I would like to recommend to people especially now I really enjoyed that book and it was a huge like I said a feeling of homecoming and belonging of like oh my god this this person gets me and she's you know, she's doing the same things that I'm doing, whether it's like mentally acknowledging. So this is what I do. And it wasn't until I read that book that I feel confident enough to admit this to public and people. When I go on walks, occasionally, I would just quite subconsciously acknowledge a tree, I would just say, hello, beach, or hey, you oak, you're looking pretty today. And it's really rather embarrassing to tell people that actually mentally, I'm talking to my trees. And I know them. And oh, there's sort of... nothing embarrassing in this. I do this sometimes <laughs> even out loud. <laughs> yeah, I know, but it's like you know, you like I, I I can say that to you, but I can't say that to a whole lot of other people, like a different category of people who are going to think I'm crazy. Oh, I'm um... recording this now. You you know that, so <laughs> there will yes, be I know, I know. a lot of people listening to this right now. <laughs> so it's it's that it's that sense of engagement. I guess. And it's that sense of awareness that something has changed from yesterday to today. And it's like, oh, you, you didn't have that many green leaves yesterday. So it's, 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 yeah, I, I find that, that I'm enchanted, you know, I'm sort of, yeah, it's, there's, it's something, there's, there's magic in it, which I think nowadays it's okay to admit. But when I was growing up, it was not okay to admit that you talked to trees as a kid. So yeah, The Enchanted Life by Sharon Blackie is really amazing. And her first book, if anybody's interested in that, If Women Rose Rooted, is another really good one. Um, oh, I think I heard of that one. Yeah, that one's a quite different subject, though. It's more mm. about and then archetypical stories and it it goes into quite a lot of psychological realm. So it can be quite heavy for some people. But yeah. The Enchanted Life is really nice. Thank you. I'm going to look it up. I, I mm-hmm. haven't read this book, but it's it sounds enchanting, as you mm-hmm. as you say. And um, and I will try to find a link to it that I can also put in the show notes. And the really the very last part, if anyone listening would like to get in touch with you, what is the best way to find you? Uh, which online platform you are using the most so i use instagram the most and i'm kindred wild on instagram or one word and uh, yeah if they want to get in touch with me they can just dm me or comment on any of my posts if they go to my website www.kindredwild.co.uk you can also contact me through there i've got a contact page i will also put links to this in the show notes Thank you very much for talking to me today. It's been intriguing listening to you and um, your approach and how you live and work in dialogue with nature in your everydays. 
Thank you so much, Hannah. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts as it really helps for others to discover it. Also, if you really liked it, you might consider sharing it directly with a friend or sharing it on social media. Please remember to tag me. I am Walking Lantern and uh, Dialogues with Nature also has an Instagram account. It's at Dialogues with Nature. Furthermore, as you may have noticed, there are no advertisements on this podcast and that has been an intentional decision from the very beginning not wanting to sell you anything here however there are considerable costs involved making this podcast available for you to listen to for free and so you can directly support me making this show either with a one-time donation, buying me a virtual cup of coffee, or you can become a regular supporter with as little as one pound a month, becoming uh, a patron. You can find the links in the show notes if you are interested to financially support this podcast. It is very welcome and I am grateful to everyone who chooses to support me. I also have another bit of news to share with you today. You may have heard me talking about the network I've been building over the past three and a half months. You may also remember me mentioning that the network is going to open its doors in July. Well, the day has come and so today is the day the website launches and if you're interested you can request an invitation to join Dialogues with Nature Network as a new member. Please go to dialogueswithnature.org to find out more. Membership places at this first opening will be limited to 50 people so once we reach capacity we will not um, invite any new members to join this time however however um, the network will open again in the autumn so that's all for today it is a quite an exciting day and lastly i would like to give credit for the music to band of burns who kindly granted me permission to use their music at the beginning and at the end of this podcast. If you love folk music and the poetry of Robert Burns, I would highly recommend you check them out. You will also find a link in my show notes. Until next time, I'm wishing you well.
Among the 